you know, we're not like that anymore. Well, chances are you might be. Uh, and really, because of the history and the contemporary like realities of abuse and marginalization at the hand of our organizations, the time has come for us, to us to really, through concrete action, co-developed action with community at the table, like what is it going to take to demonstrate that trustworthiness? Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Uh, my guest today, um, super thankful and, and grateful for having him on. I have the founding director of the Association of American Medical Colleges Center, uh, AAMC Center for Healthy Justice. I have Dr. Philip Alberti here with me today. Um, Dr. Alberti, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Corey. And please call me Philip. It's a, it's a privilege to be uh, here with you. All right, perfect. Well, Philip, before we get into the uh, the conversation today, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself and what gets you up in the morning? Sure. You know, it's interesting. I was on this panel on Friday, and this and this uh, co presenter uh, started her talk not just with a disclosure, like an academic disclosure, but a, a positionality statement. So I'm gonna I'm gonna test that out here. So I don't usually do. Okay. Uh, do something like this, but here are some here are some uh, identities that I think resonate with some of the conversation we'll have today. So, uh, I'm a cis male, uh, gay man. Uh, I'm white, but more specifically, half Sicilian, half Russian Jew. Uh, I'm a first generation high school on my dad's side, college on my mom's side. So, kind of a strong working class background. Uh, I'm the father of an adopted multiracial kid. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm a New Englander. So, I think those are some of kind of the the descriptors that 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 come to mind for me about what I do, I think is also tied to who I am. And I think that's true for most of us, uh, if not all of us in this health equity or social justice space, it's kind of deeply personal, right? So I'm a, I'm a population health scientist, uh, specifically a health equity researcher. Uh, and that focus has been kind of the through line of all of my education and professional work for like 20, 25 years. So on the day to day now, I would say, I guess what I do is I try to make the most profound contributions that I can to this movement, given the skills and the networks and the privilege that I have uh, to amplify uh, the work of others, to build bridges and make connections, uh, to model, I think, what it means to do health equity work uh, in an authentic way. And I think all of that gets me up in the morning, right? Family and work, and of course, trying to create opportunities for my son and my family so that he and his community can thrive. But I think that's true uh, for all communities. I, I truly believe that that health equity uh, is for all of us. Uh, and so that's my commitment. And that's what I do. Yeah. It, it just sounds like you, you go to sleep and wake up trying to improve, <laughs> prove this. And you've been doing this before there was a word for our term health equity. It's not like you've been doing, you've been in the game for a long time. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking about this in advance of this talk, and so I went all the way back to my senior college thesis in the mid-90s, so I was a social psych major, and it focused on kind of inequities in the prevalence of mental illness uh, and injustices around which youth get adjudicated, which get moved to services, kind of racial ethnic differences, and who's right. kind of penalized versus who's cared for, uh, and that goes all the way back to the mid-90s, so this has been... This has been it. This has been the passion. Yeah. So can you tell me a, a little bit more about that? Like what, how did you become interested in health equity? What was that start for you? Uh, so I, my parents growing up, they both had a really strong, uh, almost too strong sense of fairness, right? No one's going to get the better of us. No one's going to pull the wool over our eyes for, our, for ourselves, our friends, certainly our children, almost in like that like a clan kind of way, like we're going to make sure that, that everything's fair. Um, and I can remember, you know, so there's some part of like hardwired in me. And I can remember being a little kid, like four or five years old, unable to watch the Roadrunner cartoons because of how unfair it was mm. that like the laws of physics didn't apply to the coyote. <laughs> like the Roadrunner would zip through right. the painted on cave door and then the, and the coyote would get smashed and I would have to leave the room. And I think then, you know, that sounds trite, but I think, Upon that, I think my own lived experience, personal experience, kind of deepen that commitment, kind of moving away from fairness to one of really justice, right? And kind of that John Rawls sense of, you know, equal opportunity, making sure we're caring for the, the worst off among us, you know, equal liberties and, and able to access those liberties. And so I think in my formative years, you know, on the one hand, I can point to some instances you know, so my mom grew up in Roxbury, Massachusetts, so then and still is a predominantly black uh, neighborhood. All of her friends were black. And so racism in my house was simply not tolerated. Uh, and so I think it was a really important kind of set of learnings for me uh, from her experience. That was great on the one hand. On the other, it really gave her a sense of like these rose-colored glasses because her life was kind of racially harmonic so far as she could mm. tell. It took me like 30 years to convince her that what I do and what I've committed myself to uh, is worth it and necessary. And then, of course, I saw my own black and brown friends, you know, and I would hang out in Tower Records or Newbury Comics, which ones of us got followed, which ones of us got stopped by the police, you know, and then kind of those structural inequities of, you know, riding the T as an 11, 12 year old, the Metro in Boston, the subway, and it's kind of just seeing community assets and resource change over time, right? Not quite understanding why there were these huge inequities, I didn't have that word then, uh, between, you know, where I lived, where some of my other friends lived, etc. And on the classism front, I think I learned a lot of lessons, and we I have lots of stories on this one. You know, I, I mentioned I come from a really uh, working class background and found myself through kind of luck and perseverance and uh, a dollop of nerdiness at these incredible, like, institutions of higher education, boarding schools and Ivy League colleges. And I can remember this one really kind of seminal moment for me uh, in ninth grade at boarding school, where we had Peggy McIntosh, who's a sociologist. She came and she spoke to our all school assembly. And I went to like the most privileged boarding school you can possibly imagine, right? I just otherworldly. And, and her talk that morning was about the invisible knapsack of white privilege, right? The things that white folks are born with that we don't even recognize that we have kind of attached to us that give us passes in, in certain situations. Uh, and I had certainly seen that reality, as I said, coming up at 10, 11, 12 years old with my friends. And I looked around kind of this auditorium that was filled with like the most 
privileged kids from the most privileged families. Uh, and I don't think many of them were listening or paying attention and kind of recognize that in this room, like we had that power and that privilege, right, to unpack those backpacks, right, and to share the contents, right, with, with all of my friends and all of our friends and all of the diverse communities, not in a zero-sum game, not in kind of taking something from community A and giving to community B, but really lifting up uh, and creating that equal opportunity for health for all of us. And I think kind of my recognizing that at 14, kind of seeing how that message might not have been getting through to those other kids in that auditorium that had even more privileges than I had. I think that was the start of a real formal commitment uh, to the work of, of health equity and justice. Right. You just saw, it sounds like to me, not only growing up and understanding that there, you you had this feeling of wanting a balance in the world. And then that, then you saw this opportunity of, hey, I could actually, because of my privilege, I can make a change and kind of balance things out. It just has been driven, uh, driving you ever since. That's a much more succinct way of putting it, Corey. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you, you bring up health equity and health justice. And my, my question is, is there is there a difference? You know, what is the difference between health equity and health justice? Because I feel like when we talk about one, we usually talk about the other. Yeah. So I, I can say how we in the center have operationalized these two concepts. So at the at the the most terse level, we say that health equity is our goal and health justice is the path that gets us there. But I think it's worth maybe spending a little time kind of what we mean by that. So, you know, health equity, we're all aware of that kind of CDC or WHO definition, you know, health equity is the state where every community has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as it can be. And that's, and that's an important kind of lodestar, but it's also pretty vague. And so it's pretty abstract. Like, what does it actually mean on the ground? And so a, a new framework that we've really adopted is the vital conditions for health framework, vital conditions for health and well-being. So like, what are those basic kind of fundamental kind of floor things that all of our communities have to have to thrive, right? Reliable transportation, meaningful work, you know, freedom from racism and discrimination, humane housing. It kind of takes that social determinants of health frame, right? Like housing as a social determinant and actually flips it on like the asset-based, like the actual goal. We don't just want any housing. We want humane housing, right? And at the framework's core is belonging and civic muscle, right? Connection, power, voting. And so, so for us at the center, kind of taking that CDC health equity definition of that state, we say that health equity is achieved when every community has and provides, like almost at a default, those basic vital conditions that every community needs to thrive, right? And so then that's kind of our goal. And we say that health justice, we talk about it like this. We say we keep one foot in community wisdom uh, and multi-sector partnership. That's our process, but that's how we do this work. Right, making sure that lived experience and expertise is at the center of any potential solution. And then the action foot is working with that multi-sector community-based and driven knowledge. How do we do the kinds of research, the kinds of population health science, policy analysis, evaluation science, et cetera, that we can then actually find solutions that can be embedded right, into policies and practice changes at all levels, federal, state, local, and organizational. Right? And that we use both of those feet to walk towards health justice in a very explicitly anti-racist, anti-discriminatory way. Who are we partnering with? 
whose voice has power, right? Who are we listening to? Who's helping build these solutions uh, and holding ourselves accountable for that? So we see them as unbelievably complementary, and I'm sure there are others. I think we're in this place and time right now where there are a lot of definitions uh, around concepts of equity and justice. Uh, and so that's how we in the center at the AAMC have, have operationalized it. Right. And I think that's so great. I think the way you put it, for for example, within my space as a as a health coach at a federally qualified health center, I may you you hear a lot. You know, there's there are food pantries and food services all over the place, which is great, but it's not great when these food pantries are just filled with processed food that's not helping the person, right? So it's it's one of those things. Why, yeah, we we want housing for everybody, but we also want safe and humane housing. And when you, when you said that, like, that made me think of, yeah, I, I do like that we have food pantries or you know, all these different resources, but are they doing right by the community? Are, they do, are, they, are we doing the right thing within these spaces? So, and then you get, you know, I think one of my big fears, again, I'm a population health person. I think the medicalization of community health, of population health, is, Ooh, is to our detriment it. and the detriment of our communities, right? So when we, you know, many of our institutions, our academic health centers say we're screening for social determinants. Well, you're, you're not really screening for whether a community has uh, enough saturation of affordable housing. You're certainly not screening for humane housing. You're screening for that individual patient's right, real urgent need around being unhoused or, or marginally housed, right? And that's a really important thing to intervene on for that patient, Right? And that's good patient care, making sure right, that, you're, that the care you're providing can take root and flourish because those basic needs for that patient are dealt with. But that's not making a move in terms of creating opportunity for entire communities all at once. And that's really the work, I think, of health justice is, is taking you know, a policy or a regulatory pen you know, and creating with that one signature right, a, a huge new opportunity for health all at once uh, for entire populations. Right. No, that's good. You talked about earlier at the forefront of what you do, making sure that the voices of the people in these communities are these, that perspective be, be at the table. And, and you know what I mean? Like what, how can we ensure that the voices and perspective of marginalized communities are represented in discussions around health injustice? And uh, how can we work to empower these communities to advocate for their own health needs? Huh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. So I think communities already have power. Uh, and mm. so I don't think it's my I job like or anyone's job, right, to give power uh, to the community. I think it's more of we have to change our structures and systems uh, so to allow right, that power to, to be heard, to be adhered to, to be listened, to be part of that conversation. I think we have to show up in our partnerships ready right, to share in power. Right, and to and kind of combine our powers together. But at the end of the day, so aside from that little language thing, because I think a lot, you know, that's the other thing we could talk about, Corey, is how, you know, the, the anti-equity forces kind of use our own language against us. Maybe that's, maybe that's another, another conversation. Ooh, but I let's think- Let's talk about it today. <laughs> but I think at the core of like creating that space, where, you know, clinical power, academic power, scientific power, community power can be shared and co-located. I think for me, that's, and for the center, 
But for me, also as an individual, it's all about trustworthiness, right? And making sure that individuals and organizations that have traditionally benefited from power and privilege, right, that we begin to show that we are worthy of community's trust. And I think that's a really important kind of flipping of the script from saying, you know, communities should just get over their mistrust and distrust because, you know, we're not like that anymore. Well, chances are you might be. Uh, and really, because of the history and the contemporary like realities of abuse and marginalization at the hand of our organizations, the time has come for us, to us to really, through concrete action, co-developed action with community at the table, like what is it going to take to demonstrate that trustworthiness? And so the first, the first thing our center did was actually create our principles of trustworthiness toolkit right, in a co-developed way with members of our charge collaborative uh, and 30 or so members of local communities from, from seven different uh, towns and cities across the country to really understand what it means like to authentically right, demonstrate that trustworthiness. Right. What, what kind of feedback have you got from that? Any, anything that stands out to you right now from some of that feedback? From the, tr the trustworthiness work. Yeah. That's so funny. I think so. You know, A, we, we just, I mentioned language and voice. It is, it is a, it is a product that is absolutely not in the voice of Philip or the center or the AMC. I'll just give you a taste of some of these community co-developed principles, right? Mm -hmm. So the first one is the community is already educated. That's why it doesn't trust you, right? Mm -hmm. It's about respect and responsibility. When uh, the, the reason this toolkit was developed. So early 2020, early in the pandemic, right? When everything had exploded and we had just started to like turn our attention to the development of potential vaccines, we heard a lot of experts on the news, on TV, clinical experts, scientific experts, public health experts saying like what community needed, right? Didn't hear any community voice or community perspective, but a lot of folks talking on behalf of community. And I think oftentimes the message that I heard from those, those experts was like, oh, if only we had right, this magical pamphlet, right, that had the right pictures that looked like our community with the right language that, that would be understandable by the community. We could kind of put this in the community and educate the community, mm -hmm. and they would then trust us. They would realize that we are not like that anymore. And I think that was when we, as we were building the center in 2019, 2020, really realized that's the foundation. That's the foundation of that process foot of, of working with community wisdom and different partners you can't do this work, right? You can't develop local solutions if you are not seen as a trustworthy partner. And so that was, that, that, that was one of my, my favorite principles kind of speaks directly to that, right? Is to, to take responsibility, right? For right. your present and historical actions and have some respect, right? When you want to partner with us, you're not here to educate. You're here to partner. You're here to work with, right? You're here to learn from. Right. The education goes in all directions. And so I think, you know, I really do believe that we have as much, if not more, to learn from local community wisdom and locally developed solutions uh, than all of my doctoral training could certainly bring to bear. So, yeah, there, there's something about the about experience with the expertise or the research that plays a key role. I currently we are doing this uh i'm a part of this committee where we're trying to bring mental health destigmatized mental health conversations in the black community so we're coming up with all of these different wordings and strategies and, but we did something similar to what you were talking about philip and we gave it to the community and what we found out was from this younger generation it was like 
we don't talk like the way y'all thought we right? <laughs> like we don't right? need that <laughs> it's so funny that you say that my dissertation looked at uh stigma of mental illness and was really interested in like the labels that were applied and how those labels differ between different kinds of communities because the interventions are going to need to be different right depending Absolutely. on the, I love and and yes, the the younger set today. We have a, a research brief, a polling brief, uh, coming out next week, where we did a nationally representative sample of Generation Z, and and looked at kind of nonpartisan areas of agreement of a health justice agenda. Right, it was shocking to me that I, it's either seventy five percent or seventy nine percent. So I, I you know I, I'll fudge the number a little bit. Over seventy percent of conservative members of Generation Z said that healthcare is a human right and the federal government has a responsibility to provide healthcare. That was conservative, right? So we have a lot to learn. Our ideas, I don't know what generation you are. I am solidly Generation X. My ideas are outdated, right? They, they do not fly anymore. Yes. Yeah, I'm 39. What is that? What is that? Am I millennial? Still? I think you might be a millennial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't remember if that's a good or a bad thing, but I'm I'm gonna ride with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, quick question. This was, you know, kind of as we've been talking, talking about research, the experience of the community, what is the the balance? Because I know you're you're a researcher and you and you look at things from a population health perspective, but what's a good marriage between the the two because you, you kind of brought up when you were talking about COVID-19 there was some good research and evidence of what could work but the way we were maybe implementing it or bringing it to the community was not great so what's a good marriage between solid information and then giving and then getting the feedback from the community and, and how we can help more people that's 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 the perfect question I just attended this global health forum uh, this past week, and there was so much conversation about implementation science, right? Evaluation science. Mm -hmm. So when I when I laid out that health justice framework and that action foot, that research to policy action foot, that's kind of where in that scientific spectrum I think we need to focus, right? You might have a core, you will have, right? Research will give you a core of the best available knowledge, right? And then there's the question, like you said, how do you disseminate it? How do you take a program that's evidence based in community A? and spread and scale to diverse communities when the context, the reality on the ground is going to necessarily absolutely be completely different. And so there are kinds of research that we can do, implementation science, evaluation science, program evaluation, process evaluation, to really, again, in a community partnered way, like from the beginning, right? If you have a new research set and you want to figure out how to develop a program or a way to disseminate, right, and to get communities to adhere to, to this thing, uh, or to you know be aware of this new guideline, right? You have to stop, right? Work with your community partners, right? Understand what are the right communication channels, who are the right messengers, right? What are the right the right vehicles, the right not just the images, but the way to translate those scientific findings into meaningful, actionable, context specific solutions. And I think that's. That's also part and parcel of the work of health justice is that understanding that it's not a one size fits all, right? You know, critics would say that's my colonialism kind of attitude that there has to be a right way to do it. You know, it is okay that there are a hundred right ways to do it. And those hundred right ways can still be wrapped around, you know, a kernel of scientific truth. 
And if our goal is to kind of have that truth win the day and not the misinformation or disinformation, the only way to do that is through true, authentic kind of uh, partnership. Right. No, true, authentic partnership. Yeah, I really, I, I like that a lot. Going back to more of like a, you know, the health justice piece, Philip, when, when I feel like when I hear health justice, me personally, you know, at the beginning, the what I thought of was, you know, um, you know, the Af- issues African Americans have with the justice system, and things, you know, things like that. You know, is very, very, you know, African American focused. I'm, a, I'm a black man, is, you know, but also understanding that when we talk about health justice, there are many different communities, cultures that are affected when what what are some of those that you guys really focus on and you know can you kind of break down you know health justice in different communities that it does that you guys do look at and who it impacts i am so glad that you that you brought this up because i think one of the the biggest weaknesses and i fall into this myself an enormous weakness of kind of those of us in this space is that we are so good at like yelling our truth at each other right we can yell our truth each other all day. And we are terrible at making the 100% accurate case that a health equity agenda is truly, literally for all of us, for every community. I think, you know, we, I mentioned, maybe we'll, we can loop this back into the conversation about, about narrative and language. I think one of the ways in which kind of equity detractors use our own kind of words against us, right? There's been a lot of t- about how you know health equity only focuses on making sure that the health that outcomes are the same. That's not true. In both the definitions we talked about, it's about opportunity, right? Because if you have real sustainable opportunity, the outcomes will follow, right? And I think there's another kind of really harmful myth, a harmful narrative that we in the equity business, so to speak, it's almost like Robin Hood social justice, right? Like I'm going to steal health from community A. Right, and give it to community. That is also not this scarcity mindset is also not the case. Right? We have the ability right now in the in this country, we are by some measures, right, the wealthiest nation that has ever existed. Right. We can make sure that every single community, white, black, brown, straight, gay, poor, rich, right, all of our communities have those basic vital conditions. We're not saying everyone has to have a mansion, right? But everyone should have humane housing. That that should not be a stretch. And so I think Part of what you're getting at is, you know, this, the agenda, right? The health equity agenda is for all of us. And so in, in the center work, we, we make sure, you know, in our public opinion polling, for example, that we are slicing those data in many different ways, right? Looking not just at racial, ethnic inequities or differences, but socioeconomic or geography, for example. You know, we've done a lot of work with LGBTQIA uh, perspectives, both uh, in service of uh, maternal health and the experiences of LGBT birthing people uh, and kind of really focusing in on some of those unique and specific challenges. Um, on our paid leave analysis, we did a whole bunch, yes, on looking at racial ethnic inequities and who has access to paid leave, but also on socioeconomic differences on who actually takes paid leave and then its relationship to maternal mental health outcomes uh, and postpartum depression. So I think we have to be intentional about making sure that we are broadening our tent and the way that we speak about health equity as the goal of equal opportunity and not forced outcomes at the end, because that's not what it is. 
I think we have to make it clear that we are not just focused on one or two priority communities because there are so many priority communities. Again, going back to Rawls, making sure that we're paying attention uh, and doing the work to kind of lift up those that are the worst off. That doesn't mean we have to take away from those that are the best off. And so I think part of my commitment, and, and again, I'm not perfect at it by any stretch, uh, is doing a better job, right? And making it clear that when I say every community has and provides these vital conditions, I really mean every community. Uh, and that there's no one that I want to kind of take away from to make that a reality for somebody else. I don't think we have to do that. I think that's a false scenario. Right. It's not, it's not a this yeah, or that. It's a, it can be a this and that. It has to be. It absolutely yeah. has to be. Yes. You know, you know where, when it, when it comes to, well, I would say health equity and health justice, Philip, for me is where I feel like, man, am, I question myself, am I dropping the ball or am I, am I not doing enough when it comes to policy? I, I say to myself a lot, I don't want to be involved with politics at all. <laughs> <laughs> like not even a little bit. That. And then I go, should I though? Because there is a piece of, of understanding what's going on that can improve communities. So Maybe I'm asking this question because I want to feel better about myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for you, Corey. <laughs> but, but how much does policy and and being mindful and understanding that play a role in improving health outcomes for all in uh in health justice? It's at the core. Like, sorry mm. to tell you, it's the very you. very core. <laughs> Right? It doesn't have to be politics. Right? Policy mm. and politics might be might be different because oh. I don't want to get involved in politics either. Gotcha. But, so my training, and I'll say it this way, and then I'll link it to to, to my friend Daniel Dawes, Political Determinants of Health Work. I so read my, it. I love that book. Yes, right? So good. So important. And I think that speaks to exactly with, with what your question's digging at. So my training was in social factors as fundamental causes of disease. So social factors like racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, pick your ism, pick your phobia, right? And the idea is these social conditions, they do three things. They influence and impact many, many different outcomes. So we know that's true, right? They take many paths to kind of exert that influence. You can close off one path and they're clever. They'll find a thousand other ways, right, to end in racist or classist or sexist outcomes. And they also control access to really important health-promoting resources like power, like information, like money, or like beneficial social connections. So those are fundamental causes. And I don't think we need to look like very far at all in 2023 to see the way that those isms and phobias are working their way into our political determinants of health, like as we speak, right? Whether it's racism and voting restrictions, whether it's sexism and restrictions on reproductive rights, whether it's transphobia and pick a state, Right, trying to erase trans people from the face of the, of the of the planet. Right, so if if policies, as those policies clearly can, can erase opportunity for health for entire communities with the stroke of a pen, right, the only kind of commensurate reaction to that is to undo that work with policy again. Right, to recreate that opportunity, to open up that opportunity, to give those rights back via policy. It's not one pill at a time or one clinician at a time, right? The work of health equity and health justice is at that deep kind of political determinants of health level because those 
political decisions, as Daniel would say, the decisions that we make or don't make, the political actions we take or don't take, they maldistribute those vital conditions across our communities, right? And that's what I saw at age 12, right in the Metro in Boston, right? Going from my working class community through Cambridge and Brookline, you know, and then to get back to Dorchester and Roxbury to see how those vital conditions are unfairly distributed. And I, and I truly believe the only way to do that, again, is to work with local communities, right? Develop those hyper-local solutions, see what works, and then figure out a way to spread and scale that through science that can embed those solutions into those kinds of policy and practice changes across all levels and across all communities. No, I love that. I love that. So policy is different than politics. And I I like that so much because I, I always mesh the two in, in my mind. Yeah, you politics know? like the people. And I don't want to get in touch. That's, you know, I don't want that. Yeah. That's awesome. just sticking to policies. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Philip. Again, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Anybody that's listening and wants to learn more about you, what yeah. you do at the uh, AA, uh, AAMC, you know, Center for Health Justice, and learn more about that, where can they where can they find you? Sure. So, me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also on Twitter for now, uh, so you can find me there. Uh, Philip Alberti, PM Alberti. Uh, the center is also on uh, Twitter, and its handle is at AMC Justice. Uh, our main website is aamchealthjustice.org. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can be a member of CHARGE. We work with CHARGE as, as a first go-to for all of the work that we do. Um, and if folks uh, in your audience are particularly interested in maternal health equity, uh, our next kind of big event is our May 18th uh, maternal health workshop, uh, really thinking about how we can leverage new tools like AI and natural language processing mm. to center patient and community voice uh, in service of maternal health equity. So that's uh, 10 to 3 on 518 registration is open. Um, excited to connect with your listeners. Uh, and thank you again for this incredible opportunity, Corey. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. Uh, again, thank you. And everyone, thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I'll let you next time. <laughs>